I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. I hope that uh, you're staying safe and doing well. This is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives from Afar. We still haven't been able to make it to the same place at the same time to record the show. But um, with uh, your travel now and my travel, I feel it in my bones, John, that you and I are going to be in the same place at the same time to do great things with this show. Well, we almost did it this week. We'll see it. Near misses don't count, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a nice segue into what we're going to be talking about today. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) So so I picked out a couple, I picked out a nice accident for you to talk about today. We also, I don't want to be remiss in not mentioning our our sponsor, Avemco, the only insurance company to let you speak directly to, to the decision makers within their organization. So, yeah, you've stated before that your airplanes were, we're insured by them, and they are everything I, I know, and everything I, everybody I talk to, they say great things about the insurance company. I had an issue because with my airplane, I, I keep it on the East Coast predominantly, and I, I've let other people, friends of mine that are professional pilots, fly the airplane. And one of the issues I had with one of the pilots was as they were taxiing out, they ended up hitting a uh, taxiway light cutting a turn too sharp and it was a prop strike and while it didn't mean much as far as well it was just a taxiway light that the prop hit being in the safety business i was concerned because i have seen minor events with prop strikes that have created long-lasting or detrimental issues with the engine so in talking to the insurance company i said want an engine teardown or at least an exam, because I want to make sure that the crank is okay and everything else. And in talking with them, it was great working with them. They didn't think that a full teardown was necessary. But again, me being the safety guy I am, I was able to negotiate with them to do a complete you know, engine examination. At that time, I ended up having the engine just remanned. But based on their input and and of course, them covering a good part of uh, the examination. That made me feel better once I put that engine back on the airplane, even as minor as it was. And uh, and that's the kind of insurance company that I want to be working with because I don't want the pushback. You and I are in the safety business, and that airplane, I have to depend on it. And uh, knowing as much as I know through the years of accident investigation, 
I'm not going to settle for second best. So I always appreciate working with Avemco, and I, I hope that folks that are shopping insurance will look their way. They may be a little higher than other insurance companies, but I think that personalized direct service is worth that extra money. You know, and you've raised an interesting point in, in your little narrative you just said, and that is the assumption could be it was only a runway light. I only broke the glass. But prop strikes can cause hidden damage that you won't see for days, weeks, or months. And when it does fail, it's catastrophic. It's nice to know that there's people out there that will go the extra mile with pilots to make sure that they don't uh, have those kinds of problems and not afraid to report them either. Absolutely. And again, I have to deal with them. I don't want the hassle. I don't want to have to fight. And I definitely don't need the pushback. I'm in the business. I think I know a little more than, you know, most when it comes to what the long-term ramifications are. So I like people that I can work with, agreeable. You can explain things to them and compromise, things like that. So now that's, uh, it, it's always been an, a great experience with me and Avemco Insurance. So And they've been around a long time. Yes. 60 years. So they've been around as long as I have. <laughs> well, that's because you stopped counting birthdays. I think you and Dirt are about the same age, John. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel so, like it. Yeah. It must be a hereditary thing because my mother stopped counting her birthdays too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She hated to admit her age. The good thing is, you know, age is just the number. I'll tell you, there are days when I feel a lot better at my age now than I did in my 20s and 30s. And I got a feeling I, I know what I can attribute it to, and it's called adult beverages. So, <laughs> so. What's wrong with adult beverages? Well, no, adult beverages are great in moderation. In your 20s and 30s, just like in college, you know, that moderation seems to, you know, have... <laughs> have a higher number than in as you get a little older. So That's true. That's true. You know, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about recently are some of the general, well, the general aviation accidents that have been happening. And we've been critical of the NTSB for not sending people out because they're using the veil of COVID as their, uh, their reason for not actually conducting the investigation on scene, or at least the on-scene portion of the investigation. And uh, there was a high-profile accident recently, and high-profile just because the news media picked up on it, and the person involved, the pilot involved, happened to be a high-profile attorney in the Buffalo area. And you and I mentioned it, I believe, on uh, one of our podcasts, but it gained traction not necessarily because of us, but the board not showing up on scene gained traction to prompt two congressmen to write letters to the chairman of the NTSB asking them, why aren't you showing up? Oh, how did they answer that? Well, they said, well, we're sending the FAA out to do the on-scene. We're still in charge of the investigation. We're still going to do a thorough and methodical investigation and we're using the FAA as our eyes and ears on scene to collect the information. Well, my response to that response is BS, because you and I have gone through this in previous shows. 
that you cannot do on-scene investigations from afar or after the fact and critical data. Well, it's apparent that a couple of congressmen believe that this warranted on-site participation by the NTSB. But I think that uh, the response that went back to them was what we just talked about, and that is, we're still in charge, we're doing it, we're just sending the FAA out. Well, again, I still don't understand. If the FAA can show up, why can't the board? But for you, being a former board member, John, if you got a congressional inquiry, whether it's on why didn't you show up to this accident or something else, from a political standpoint, how do you handle that? I mean, the, you know, I know that you can just, you know, try and schmooze your way back going, well, you know, we're going to do all this and we're still going to be able to do this and, and that kind of stuff. And that may Buffalo, pardon the pun, some of these folks in that response. But from a political perspective, what does that do? You know, I never viewed accident investigations as political. And I, I held the, uh, the job and the people who do the job in very high esteem. So if I were driving the NTSB and I received that letter, well, first off, I wouldn't have received that letter because we would have sent people. The investigators are trained in biohazards. They can go out and they can protect themselves and, and, and come back and, and not put anyone else at risk like their family or anyone else they come in contact with because those protocols have been in place since the 90s. I, I can remember using them, that whole biohazard process in 1994 and two accidents that, that we did. So, and one of the ones with you. So, and that was the Charlotte accident. So we had those protocols in place now for, for 25 years, more than 25 years. So I don't, I just don't understand why the board is not sending trained investigators out that know what they're doing on accident investigation, as well as trained them, protecting themselves and everybody else. I never would have had to answer that question. We would have done our job. There was another high-profile accident, again, because of the circumstances. And that was an accident that happened out here in Colorado, outside of Telluride. And it was a sad story. It was one of those heart-wrenching stories where you had a young couple, the pilot of this particular airplane was a United Airlines pilot. He was a 757 pilot. He had just purchased a, uh, a beach bonanza. Uh, they lived down in Florida in uh, the Daytona Beach area, and they decided to elope. So they flew their airplane out here to Telluride, spent four days. Uh, they got married, and there are a number of pictures circulating on the Internet and stuff. They were taken off to return back to Florida. Now, flying into Telluride when you're already at altitude is a little different than taking off out of Telluride on a, on a warm day in a normally aspirated airplane. You really have to understand mountain flying. You really have to understand the geography in that particular area, because if you turn up a, a wrong canyon to get into a box canyon, you have no margin of error and no margin of safety. And and while the pictures indicate the obvious that possibly trying to retreat after making a mistake and following a, a canyon in trying to retreat out of that canyon the pilot was unable to maintain the performance of the aircraft, you know, stalled the airplane and crashed. Isn't that airport like a 12,000 feet? It's 8,000 8, feet, but when you have density altitude, it's 12,000. At least on that day, it was around 11,000, 12,000. 
So you're already pushing the performance envelope. The big thing here is the board didn't send anybody out. The salvage company went in, picked up the wreckage, and the investigation will be done from afar. And while on the surface, John, this is always my concern. The obvious looks like from looking at the airplane, stall spin, write it off, it's a done deal. There are always backstories. You don't know if there was a mechanical malfunction or failure. You don't know what other environmental circumstances may have had some sort of effect on the outcome of this event. And without going out there and without really hitting the pavement while information is new and fresh, you don't get the good stuff. So how can you do a thorough and methodical examination and and expect to come up with a thorough or at least a good probable cause if you haven't collected all the facts, conditions, and circumstances? I wonder if they, in the course of turning the, the recovery of the airplane over, if they're asking anybody to look through for iPads or GPS, handheld GPSs or what, because they usually provide a lot of information, but when they are left on and kill the batteries, you lose lots of that. Yeah, but like, you know, a lot of these aviation programs do retain, like I I have breadcrumb tracking, it's called some fancy name, but, you know, I can record my flights on my iPad through one of the programs I use. So I can go back and play it and see what I've done um, and things like that. And it's it's a great tool. It's a great tool for the board. And the board does it, does make it a point of trying to recover electronic devices to see what's on them and to see if there's useful information that can be gained to help them. I will give them that credit. But that is an after-the-fact piece of information that doesn't record what's going on in the environment. It doesn't record what's going on with the pilot. It sure doesn't record if there's an engine problem or something else going on with the aircraft. It is just an electronic witness of facts that have already occurred. Well, you know, I I was uh, looking through the accident reports that were online for the Southwest last week, last weekend, actually. I see something more than 20 accidents in the Texas area that have not been investigated by the NTSB. And I imagine those numbers across the Southwest, and in fact, it's Across, probably across the whole country, because this is flying weather here in the Northeast as well, have not been investigated. Yeah, but you know, John, the NTSB is going to say, we are investigating. We just aren't showing up. We've got the FAA doing it, you know, because that they do have that authority to either delegate whole or in part to the FAA, their process. So they will tell you that, yes, they are investigating it. But again, it's the quality and, it, you know, is the quality of the investigation and the outcome of that investigation thorough and methodical? And is it beneficial to aviation and aviation safety? I think it's a disservice to not show up and do your job when family members who are in, you know, immense pain because they lost a loved one or friends lost, you know, somebody close to them. And you basically write it off to pilot lost control and crashed. Well, that's great. But what's the backstory? Why do you think they lost control? Those are the kinds of answers that 
never come in a report. I see it all the time. I'm dealing with numerous accidents right now as a consultant where the board has come up with a generic probable cause that is not really in-depth. And I'm finding the backstory that they should have found and should have examined and should have identified as part is, is either a cause or a contributing factor, and they failed to do it. And I, I just, I have no confidence in their investigation just because I keep seeing it over and over and over again. And just like the accident you and I are going to talk about involving a midair collision out here in Colorado, you know, again, the board came up with a very simplistic probable cause. The, the, those two congressmen put that letter out. Congress controls the budget for the NTSB. I wonder if they're thinking, what the hell are they getting for their money? Yeah. Where's the bang for my buck that, you know, they're getting? I mean, these guys are sitting at home. They're not producing. They're not producing very good acts investigation reports. They're not producing safety recommendations right now. And those two things are the crux of the board in enhancing not only aviation safety, but transportation safety. And I bet you if we had the ability to look, we'd find out that they're not even doing uh, reconsiderations. Well, I know that you had asked me about an accident out here in Colorado, so I'll let you introduce it since you were asking whether or not I was aware of it. And of course I am. I'll turn it back to you to introduce this accident. Okay. Well, what caught my eye was a mid-air collision between a, a fixed-wing aircraft, a single engine. Beach A36, and a Robinson R44 right on the airport. But both of them were in flight, so it wasn't on the airport per se accident. It was a mid-air collision right at the threshold of the airport. And that, that's what caught my eye, because it was so unusual. And it was at Loveland, Colorado, and it's an uncontrolled airport, but it's it's not a small airport. There's a lot of activity in that area. So, The unique thing about that, before you go on, John, the unique thing about that airport is that it is one of a handful of experimental airports around the country. Fort Collins-Loveland, which is now called Northern Colorado Regional Airport, while it is, quote, uncontrolled, the airport is actually monitored by air traffic from Chicago. And they do it through the use of monitoring the frequency through a series of cameras that are at the airport that look 360 degrees of, at the airport. So when you call in, you're actually talking to a controller and they can see you visually because these cameras scan the skies of the airport boundaries. That was the fortunate thing in this accident with regard to using that visual capability, the, the video is recorded, to gain additional factual information with regard to how this midair collision occurred. Wow. Modern technology at its best. It's awesome um, because, you know, you are talking to somebody when you go in there and they can actually see you both in the air and on the ground. And so you're going to be talking to somebody. You're going to make position reports. You're going to do all that kind of stuff. And they can see you virtually and talk to you. I think it's a great concept. It sure 
it it kind of didn't work in this particular regard in preventing uh, this midair because as we're going to talk about the pilot of the fixed wing airplane the bonanza made decisions that were not only poor but were in non-compliance with the federal aviation regulations and more so than that they were just against the you know good judgment i mean they were just stupid decisions Wow. You know, we get a lot of that, don't we? Poor decision-making. And, you know, people say, well, you're always blaming the pilot. Well, you and I have talked about this in the past. We're both pilots. Last thing I want to do as an accident investigator is blame a pilot. But when you start dissecting the facts, conditions, and circumstances, a lot of the errors and omissions that occur in the operation of an aircraft focus on the cockpit. And while, yes, there can be errors and omissions by a mechanic who puts a pilot in a position of jeopardy because they've done something during the course of maintenance that was improper and the pilot experiences it in the air, those are few and far between. The majority of the accidents start with decisions that are made either before the flight, during the flight, or in the final phases of the flight. And like this one, you have a helicopter that the pilot was making radio calls. He had just gotten the helicopter back from a facility who installed some new avionics. He was flying a instrument approach, an RNAV approach, into northern Colorado Regional on a VFR day. He was just checking the functionality of the avionics. And he was communicating not only his position, but his intentions. There was a beach bonanza being flown by a doctor that had come out of Greeley, Colorado, not too far from northern Colorado Regional. And the pilot was flying over to the airport and they were in communication. The fixed wing pilot heard the helicopter pilot talking about what he was doing, where he was, and they got into a, a two way discussion to the point where the bonanza pilot asked, Hey, you know, okay, you know, you're four or five miles out. I'm just going to extend my downwind while you do your thing. So the doctors supposedly flies his airplane on an extended downwind, turns inbound, and he sees the helicopter in front of him. He, at first, he didn't know it was a helicopter, but if you pay attention to the radio communications, the helicopter pilot announced that he was a helicopter. <laughs> and that's critical. For all pilots, you got to be plugged in. You got to be paying attention. You got to be listening, not only for the end number call sign, but a lot of people will say, you know, this is Aerostar one two three four. Or this is Comanche one two three four. You know that that that's a fixed wing versus helicopter two nine four five. Yeah, you just announced it. You got to be plugged into the whole radio transmission. But this fixed wing pilot did have visual sighting of the helicopter and was watching the helicopter progress towards the airport while he was in trail. And then, according to the doctor, since he did survive this accident, he stated after the accident, I was watching that helicopter and it looked like he was he was hovering. He made a call to the helicopter, supposedly made a call to the helicopter pilot saying, hey, what are you going to do? Are you hovering back down there? And the pilot said, supposedly responded, yeah, I'm going to hover here for a while. 
So the doctor determined that if that was the case, he was going to try and overfly, just jump over the top of the helicopter, who is still on final, heading towards the runway. And the aircraft was moving based on radar data. It never came to a hover. And the helicopter pilot never told this doctor that he was going to stop and hover. And and data confirms that the helicopter was always moving at around 70 knots towards the runway. But in the response by the doctor, he decided, okay, I'm going to overfly you and land. Well, right there. And the hair in the back of my neck is standing up as you're saying it. I, I mean, common sense says you do not fly over the top of another aircraft who is ahead of you and below you to try and land because you don't know what that other airplane is going to do. It's one thing. We've had midair collisions, John, and you know it. I know it. And in fact, there was a a very well-known accident that occurred between an NTSB investigator and an FAA inspector who were both involved in a midair collision. They hit each other. The NTSB investigator died. The FAA inspector survived. That was a case of they did not see each other until they struck each other. Here, you have a pilot of a fixed-wing airplane who can see the traffic in front of him. He knows where that aircraft is. He sees his relative position. Yet he consciously and premeditatedly decides, you know, to hell with the rules. I'm going right over the top of this guy and I'm going to land because, you know what, he's just sitting out there, you know, and he's slowing me down. And when you have an approach speed of 70 miles an hour or 70 knots in the helicopter versus around 90 to 100 in that Bonanza, one, the Bonanza was starting to overtake the helicopter. He was starting to close that distance. Last thing he wants to do is spin a circle to, you know, give him more spacing. But in this particular instance, as you look at all the evidence and you read all of the comments that this pilot made, and then you start researching that the FAA didn't believe his story, (laughs) this is basic logic as a pilot. This is piloting 101. This is not rocket science. And the fact is, is that when you have an aircraft in front of you, you can see it. You know it's on final. I don't care if the guy is at a dead stop hover. He's got that airspace. He owns that airspace until he abandons that airspace. And you can't do anything to harm him in that airspace. And this pilot knowingly, and he told the helicopter pilot, well, if you're going to do that, then I'm coming over the top of you. I'm going to overfly you. It's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, we talked on in a previous show about the effects of a helicopter being underneath the fixed-wing airplane and what it can do to the lift or destroy the lift on the fixed-wing aircraft. It's crazy to put yourself in that position. It really is, John. And to knowingly do that, it's one thing. It worries me every time I go into an airport, especially an uncontrolled airport, because I was flying a couple of months ago. And I was just getting checked out in a, in a 172. Actually, it was, uh, yeah, 172 at a uh, local flying club. And I was at that same airport. And as I got into the pattern, I had made all my announcements. 
I got cut off on the downwind by a 182 that came into the pattern and didn't announce his position in space until he was already established on final, but he had cut me off by probably less than a mile. I mean, I ended up pulling out of the pattern and doing a 360 to get my spacing because he had, he had pulled in in front of me. But again, this was, I mean, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was poor piloting technique on his part. He come blasting into the pattern, didn't make any radio calls because I was listening. But in this particular instance, this isn't a case of, I don't know you're there. I'm unaware because you didn't make a radio call. These two guys are talking to each other. And the fact is, is that, well, you're slower than me and I don't want to wait for you. So I'm coming in over the top of you. I mean, <laughs> that is just nuts. It certainly is. So. They both survived this crash, I, I see. They did. The, uh, the helicopter pilot sustained the more serious of injuries because the Bonanza descended into the top of the rotor system. And, uh, of course, the rotor system then totally failed. And now you had, you know, a couple thousand pound machine falling out of the sky like a brick. The Bonanza pilot uh, just had damage to his landing gear, but was still able to touch down. The airplane then went sliding off the side of the runway, but he sustained no injuries. But when you start to dissect the information, and I've gone back and looked at it, very detailed examination, well beyond the NTSB, the video played a, an important part in conjunction with ADSB radar data because it clearly demonstrated the failure of the fixed wing pilot to fly a proper pattern and he cut the pattern short. He said he was going to extend it. It's obvious he didn't. He got in behind the helicopter who of course was flying slower and rather than either adjust his speed, that is the fixed wing pilot adjusting his speed for the slower aircraft in front of him by either slowing his airplane down or just doing a 360-degree turn or doing S-turns to provide more spacing. You know, he just came boring in at normal approach speed, 90 to 100 knots, and started catching up to the helicopter. The radar data shows the helicopter never went into a hover. In fact, it was continually moving towards the runway. That's why the accident, when it occurred, happened over the top of the runway, because the, the helicopter and the fixed wing both crashed on the runway surface. So this particular instance, that data was then supported by the video. You can actually see the Bonanza in the video overtaking the helicopter. And these two pieces of evidence are critical in debunking the, you know, contrived story that the fixed wing pilot tried to proffer to the NTSB and the FAA with regard to I was talking to him. He told me he was doing this. I told him I was overflying. We were all good. He said, okay, when in fact, none of that happened. None of that happened. And even if it did, John, where in the hell is your logic? You don't overfly an aircraft because as soon as he came over the top, of course, he lost sight of that helicopter. He didn't know whether that guy was going to continue on a downward profile or he would have pulled up right into the flight path had 
the fixed wing pilot not descended into the helicopter before that occurred. Yes, just another shake your head about decision making on the part of a pilot. Well, you always know, you have to remember that there's an electronic witness somewhere, some somehow, at just about every single airport. And in this case, because the surveillance video that's being used by ATC, because it is a remote airport, the guys in Chicago are watching this all take place on, on video. The fact is, is that there is a lot of surveillance video that is being captured at FBOs and at private hangars. I've done a number of accidents in the recent past. There is a lot of video that is uh, circulating on the internet. I think one of the more famous videos that's circulating on the internet is the surveillance video from a camera mounted on a hangar at an FBO of the Canada Air Challenger trying to land at Aspen several years ago, where they were landing in a 30-knot tailwind. And they made an approach. They abandoned the approach because they couldn't get the airplane down. They come back around, and rather than go somewhere else, they now try to force it onto the runway. They ended up shoving the nose of the airplane into the runway. The airplane ricochets off the runway, goes airborne again, and then comes down in a catastrophic heap, explodes, rolls over, and burns, and kills a couple of the pilots. All of that are tools for investigators to use. And in this case, the video in conjunction with the radar data, provided a picture that debunked the story provided by the fixed-wing pilot, who clearly, clearly was in violation of a number of uh, federal aviation regulations. And I won't say violation because I'm not the one to make that judgment, but it's obvious that he was in non-compliance. 91.3, which is the safe operation or the operation of the aircraft, using good judgment, 91.111, which says that you will not fly your aircraft in close proximity to another aircraft so as to create a danger, and then 91.113 that says you will yield the right of way to other aircraft of different categories and classes or types. And in this particular instance, this pilot was in noncompliance with those three, but more he was in non-compliance with frickin' logic and good judgment. And in looking at this, John, you want to know why he did that? Well, that's waiting for that because I was I was reading ahead and I don't see it mentioned here. Oh yeah, it's mentioned. It's not mentioned in the NTSB report, which was an important point that they missed because we've always talked about self-induced pressure with pilots trying to accomplish the mission, racing the clock, doing all of these things. We talked about it in the, um, in the dissection of uh, American 1420, where you have the self-induced pressure. We got to get there. We're racing the clock. We're racing the weather and that kind of stuff. This particular pilot was racing the clock. He had a scheduled flight instruction appointment because he was working on his instrument rating. And he was impatient because he was running late. So rather than take an extra two minutes in the pattern or three minutes in the pattern to land behind this helicopter, he thinks he's going to go over the top. That's the kind of thing that leads me to the point that if this guy, which he's still flying, the FAA didn't yank his certificate for being stupid. He did have to do some Mickey Mouse check ride, which I still question. <laughs> 
But the bigger concern is now he's going to be an instrument rated pilot. What kind of decision making, what kind of judgment is he going to exercise when flying under those conditions? And is he going to do things that are going to jeopardize my safety or the safety of other people when I can't see him? I don't know he's there because he's not doing things in a standardized manner. Yes. Yes. I mean, we all have to have to play by the rules in order to protect ourselves. The concern, John, is that it goes well beyond playing by the rules because you don't know who's playing by the rules and who isn't. The assumption, especially from the perspective of people flying IFR, there is a tacit trust. There's a tacit trust in other pilots. There is a tacit trust in air traffic control that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. But again, you've seen it. I'm investigating it where I have pilots who are flying VFR who have blasted into clouds. They're not instrument rated. They don't have any kind of clearance. They think that, well, that cloud's small. I'll just blast into it. Or they're trying to punch up through a layer because they know that layer is only 500 feet thick. So as long as they can keep the wings level on autopilot, they'll pop up over the top. Again, those kinds of uh, judgment calls and decisions and actions by pilots, while it doesn't seem to impact them to the point of, well, it's no big deal, it does have a greater impact on the fact that if I'm in that cloud on an IFR flight plan and this guy is popping through and the controllers don't know he's there and I don't know he's there, bad things can happen. In a nutshell, what's the, what's the takeaways from this accident? You know, the first most obvious one is don't fly over overfly an airplane in front of you. I mean, it's judgment. You got to exercise judgment. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that what he did, there is nowhere in any pilot training scenario that teaches you that you should overfly another aircraft because you're in a hurry. You're impatient. He's slower than you. He's taken up airspace that you think is rightfully yours. It doesn't work that way. And the fact is, is that because of his error, he almost cost the life of another human being. And he, he has a careless disregard. He doesn't think. And to this day, I'll bet if you ask him, he doesn't think he was wrong. And that kind of attitude, it's talked about in Advisory Circular 60-22, where the FAA talks about aeronautical decision-making. This guy, macho, you know, anti-authority. I'll do what I want. I make up my own rules. Why? Because I am who I am. These are the kinds of things that put pilots in jeopardy. You have to be respectful. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to be professional. You have to be logical. In this particular instance, all of that with this pilot went out the window. And I don't care if he thinks he has the hands of God because he's a doctor. The fact is, you can't make up the rules. And we can't make up the rules. The FAA's made up the rules. Some of them, yeah, we may not agree with them, but the rules are the rules. Best practices, good judgment. The takeaway here is, you know what? You have to think about the ramifications if your little rule change doesn't work out. 
Well, it's another thing I want to talk to you about that I just came to the forefront uh, over this weekend, and that is people who get COVID, but not bad. You know, they they have don't go to the hospital, they don't get on ventilators, but apparently there's a couple of phenomenon that are occurring that they so far I haven't seen anyone explain it, and one is. They, these people seem to lose the sense of smell, which can affect flying because you could have smoke or fire and you wouldn't notice it until it's well progressed. And the other is some people seem to have a fog in their, their mind, their memory. I've been reading about that, John, and that is a real concern to me. And I know that, you know, we've talked about it a little bit uh, prior to the show. That's a concern that. People in aviation, especially the FAA, really need to pay attention to because you and I both know that there are people out there in the aviation business that have COVID, had COVID, or could possibly get COVID. And while we don't know to what extent they experience symptoms, whether they're mild or to the most severe where they do end up in a hospital on a ventilator, you bring up a very good point that if your senses are dulled, such as smell, that's a big issue for pilots. That's also a big issue for mechanics. That's a big issue for flight attendants. Why? Because their sense of smell does assist them in performing their safety critical job. The other part of this is for pilots if this brain fog, which I've been reading about, does occur, which again, it can occur with people that experience even mild symptoms of COVID, they get over it. But what I've been reading, and I think I passed on to you, John, is that they interviewed several people, even in the healthcare business, a nurse said, I performed lab tests, I've talked to patients, I've walked out of the room. And I can't remember what they said. I can't remember terms, medical terms that should be used, even though I used them in my previous life prior to COVID. Knowing them, left, right, front and center, they can't remember the terms. They've, she's had to ask colleagues. This is real disconcerting because now you get a pilot in an airplane and all of a sudden, you know, they're flying single pilot. We don't know if this brain fog starts to happen. Next thing you know, the airplane, they're flying an approach and the airplane goes off course or goes wild or whatever. And it's like, what the heck is that pilot doing? Or if you're in a crew environment, you know, one pilot starts doing something that's wacky. You're going, so how do I fly this approach? Dude, you're the captain. <laughs> you're supposed to know how to fly this approach. So I, I think that you know, in, in this discussion. And again, I'm going to do some more research and reach out to some of my medical friends, because I think that this is worth a, a show in and of itself with, with trained professionals. But is the FAA going to start looking at this? Because if this infiltrates into the safety critical aspects of aviation, is this something that the FAA needs to get a handle on? Do airlines start watching the performance of their pilots, either in initial or recurrent training. 
you know, do supervisors have to look at mechanics on the floor who are doing a task, but all of a sudden do it incorrectly, even though they've done it 6,000 times? The occurrence of COVID on the ramp with baggage handlers, which affect the weight and balance and mechanics, I, I, I personally know of uh, several dozen uh, mechanics that have had COVID. In some workplaces, it's really had a, a major impact on the crews because it, it, uh, it traveled like wildfire right through the, like the midnight shift. It has affected a number of mechanics, uh, air traffic controllers. They're not immune from it either. You know, and they, and they work in close proximity with other controllers. Well, the last thing we need is a controller who's working in a center facility where they're staring at a radar screen and they get into this brain fog. And next thing you know, they've got airplanes doing things and running them together. That is not good for aviation safety. So this could have a long-term impact on you know aviation as a whole. Nobody knows from what I've just been able to read. Nobody knows what the long-term effect is. Is this a short-term thing immediately after recovery or part of the recovery? Or is this something that, like some of these other lung issues that tend to be prolonged and keep going for a long period of time after you supposedly have become well, is this something that could be a long-term issue? I mean, one of these people described it like having dementia. Now, I've never had dementia. One of my grandparents had dementia. I know how devastating it was in communicating and, and dealing with them. But if they're describing this, and these are young people, these are not old people. If they're describing the effects as like having dementia, that is a real concern or should be a real concern to the aviation community. Yes, something else for the FAA to worry. I mean, we criticize the FAA a lot or often. But uh, sometimes, you know, they got a workload that can be quite challenging. I'm going to run this by my office partner, who is an aviation psychologist, and just see what he has to say, because uh, it's definitely worth getting Chuck on the show to talk about COVID and the effects that it has on the psyche of people, especially those people that have lost their job due to layoffs in the airline business recently. But now this adds an added element. I'll run it by him because I think it would be worthwhile us talking about it on a future show. Yes. Well, that sounds like a good place where we can uh, end this segment and pick it up another day. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention our sponsor, Eventco Insurance. And if you're out there in the market for insurance, please consider Eventco. You can give them a call. I'll even give you the phone number. It's 888 879 0389. Or you can also go online to avemco.com and talk to those people. As you said, Greg, they were nice people to deal with. And in the insurance business, that's not exactly routine. Yeah, absolutely, John. That is one of the truest statements I've heard. So, but this is always a, a, a good discussion that I have with you. We talk about it every episode now, and I can't wait to see you in person and definitely dissect more of these events. We're going to get into uh, a lot of other accidents using the cockpit voice recorder and, and some of the other 
information that uh, will provide the backstory to a lot of these accidents, because I know a lot of our listeners who have sent us emails have said that they really enjoy hearing those backstories. You don't read about them. And then in a lot of cases, the backstory is more informative than the front story. So we're going to be doing a lot more of that. So I wish you well, my friend. I know that our listeners out there have been in constant communication during this period. You can always contact John and I through our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. We enjoy reading the comments. We take those suggestions. We're starting to build future shows based on a lot of the suggestions we're getting. So again, we appreciate our listeners taking the time to actually sit down and send us an email. We really appreciate the folks that I've seen recently that have donated to the show to provide sponsorship for us besides our major sponsor, which is Pama and Avemco, we always would love to have listener support as well. That's what keeps the show going. We're going to grow it. As we've said on previous shows, we're going to try and grow it in the future. But again, it takes financial resources to do that. So with that being said, we always encourage you to give us your feedback. Definitely rate our show on whatever podcast provider you're listening to us, because that too helps us in uh, taking the show forward. So I will give you the last word, my friend, as I always do. Okay. Everybody, please stay safe in your personal life. You know, I don't go out without a mask. I don't go inside any buildings without my mask on. You know, there's a lot of difference of opinion about wearing a mask or not. But when I'm with people I don't know, and even, and that's taken a big leap because sometimes people you do know could be infected. But I wear a mask to make sure that I'm protecting them from me and that I'm being protected myself. So please, in your personal life, stay safe. And if you're flying, definitely be safe. Use your head. Don't take any risks, especially if you're rusty. You know, a lot of people haven't flown for a while because of the virus. You can't just go out and jump in that airplane and take off and go. You've got to make sure that you're, you're freshen up your skills before you go challenge them. And with that, please fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.